Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today I'm in Roskill Development, it's in Auckland and I'm surrounded by half-built houses, old state homes and some newly built ones and there is so much work going on here, street after street after street. This is a kainga order development. There are workers everywhere, they're building new roads, they're building huge drains they're building houses and they're promising that ordinary Kiwi home buyers will be able to live here and that many of the homes will be below Auckland's median house price of 1.1 million dollars but still these houses or some of them will be selling for many hundreds of thousands of dollars so even when there is mass building going on construction costs are well going through the roof. Today on The Detail we break down the price of building a house and find out if there's any hope these costs will come down. No worries at all. Oh. Got a long list of questions here, John. I'm back in the studio now with John Tukey. He's the Professor of Construction Management at AUT. Now, at the top of my thing here, it says John Tukey is literally a professor of all this stuff. <laughs> sort of, yes. <laughs> it seems to be that way. Are you really well. in touch with people in the industry? I spend a lot of time talking to folks in, in, the, in the real world, as it were, outside of academia. I'm always uh, pleased by the sense of humour and the sense of the ridiculous that the average uh, builder has, which I, I, it, it works for me. I try to get people to talk to me about this investigation that's coming up at the end of the year with the Commerce Commission, they're looking into building supplies. Mm. I thought it would be really good to get someone who's in the industry, but nobody wants to talk about nobody it. Nobody wants to talk about it simply because it's too commercially sensitive yes. and, and nobody wants to point the finger at anybody else. At the same time, nobody wants to get the finger pointed at them, so it goes on. <sighs> We'll talk more about the supply chain and costs of building, but first I want to find out what people in the sector are talking about. Well, the biggest single issue comes down to being able to flex at a particular rate uh, to, to grow rapidly enough to be able to cope with things. And it's all very well people say, well, build more, build more, build more. That's fine, but you've actually got to have firm contracts to actually complete by a particular time before you can commit yourself to to uh, more staff, more capability, more more investment. Without the the um, orders in place, doesn't happen. All you got to do is go back to what happened with Kiwi Build. Remember that? Mm-hmm. We don't. It's like Fight Club. We don't talk about Kiwi Build. You know. Our hundred thousand over ten years is unchanged. Will you drop those one thousand, five thousand, ten thousand? Our hundred thousand over ten years is unchanged. Our hundred thousand over ten years hasn't changed. With Kiwi Build, what happened was the orders were not forthcoming, so the industry did not scale up, and then all of a sudden you've got this. Uh, hostage to fortune that's been laid out uh, at the feet of the politicians because without the without the orders in place, without the firm contracts with finish dates in place, nothing's going to happen. Just sitting there and saying, well, let it be so, is not a solution. So I want to build a new home. Mm-hmm. What's my first step? Well, you can do it along the lines of either finding a section by yourself or looking for a house land package that's uh, offered by one of the group builders that we typically see. All right, so a developer is building my house. So what do they start with? They've got a block of land. There needs to be resource consent in place for the development to take place itself. Once that's happened, then they've got to do the uh, the land improvements that are necessary. You know, you don't just 
pick a field and start digging a hole. It doesn't quite work that way. You have to do various different things. This could incorporate retaining walls, for example, sewage, drainage, power, dewatering, so that you uh, take away any um, subterranean uh, water sources and so on. Once that's in place, then you can start to do the, the actual construction process itself. All right, so by that stage, haven't even put down the foundations, mm-hmm. but how much would it be costing so far depends with the land the, and the infrastructure? Right, it depends where the land is. depends what the land is sitting on. There's a huge difference between building on clay and building on sand. You go out to where I live in uh, Kaipara Harbour and you break through a small amount of topsoil and all of a sudden you're in some sort of brittle sandstone. Compared to top of the white axe, it's solid clay. The price of a section in Auckland is several hundred thousand dollars usually, isn't it? Uh, Maybe four to five hundred thousand is pretty pretty standard. Okay, and obviously in other parts of the country it's less. Then the cost of that infrastructure, what would that be, tens of thousands or, again, hundreds of thousands? It, it, again, it varies where, on the basis of what you've got to put in place. And we've got a friend at the moment who's just building a house on North Shore and uh, all of a sudden they've got to do a bunch of retaining walls and there's an extra thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 worth of work that's got to go in. Uh, so it can be tens up to couple of hundred thousand even. You talked about the consents. There'd be costs, quite high costs in that. So you get the initial consents that are in place for the, for the house. Once you've decided what it is that you want to build, there'll be further building consents that have to be put in place. So the designs get signed off uh, by the designers, subsequently by council, and then you're off to the races. How much does that cost usually? It's multiple thousands. It can be in the tens of thousands. And still the house hasn't been built. Yeah, all you're looking at is bare block at the moment. Exactly. Pretty much. Then I guess it's about finding the builders and the subbies. Yep. What, on average, is their hourly cost? If you go to a a group builder, they will give you a total that encompasses everything, including materials, uh, labour, and everything else. So your your when you say hourly cost, the total cost to build a two hundred square meter property, typically you're gonna be talking something over two thousand dollars a square meter. If you're building on two levels, the cost per square meter goes up because of the additional engineering requirements that go into the structure. Mm-hmm. And the requirement for things like Scaffolding, for example. $1,300 a square metre to build in Australia and $2,300 a square metre to build in New Zealand. That's TV3's Duncan Garner talking about the age-old Australia versus New Zealand argument. And I, and I can tell you I spent half a million dollars on that particular study of mine that I did a personal study. It's so, a real thing. It happened to me. The thing is, John Tukey reckons you just can't make the comparison. We're dealing with a small economy. The costs associated with supplying a small economy are substantial compared to everywhere else. Typically, we constantly talk about Australia's cheaper than us. And, yeah, maybe so. But they have some systemic issues there which allow that to be so. Um, If you take two comparable economies, New Zealand's 5 million people, Sydney is 5 million people, approximately. They have about 13,000 square kilometres for Sydney and the district around. We have a couple of hundred thousand. We're we're spread over multiple islands and multiple locations. We expect to be able to build at the same price everywhere. They can supply their uh, demand for 5 million people in that uh, little island of Sydney. They can do it with about 400 builders merchants. We require 850 to do everything here in New Zealand. 
our overhead costs are higher just because of that. The Commerce Commission says overseas experience indicates this sector, the building sector, can be susceptible to cartel or price fixing due to the structure of many construction markets. The answer is arguably yes, mm. and, but it's also arguably yes in any industry, anywhere, at any time. There's, there's always the opportunity to act in a cartel environment. Now, uh, we have a duopoly here, though, don't we? In, to, to, a, to, a, to a certain degree. We've got Fletcher. uh, Fletcher's do their thing, and then you've got the Carter-Holt set up as well. As far as that particular issue is concerned, you know, the duopoly, it's easy to make the allegation. You know, I'm not here to uh, carry water for any, anybody at this point. It's less straightforward to be able to demonstrate the cartel behaviour that would be required to, to justify the, the allegation. Do you keep an eye on what people are charging down the road? And the answer is, yeah, of course you do. You know, when you're putting stuff in as a tender for a particular job, you've got to have a, f a fair idea of what your, uh, your proposition is going to be. And by the way, you're not compelled to put in a lower price. Uh, builders can afford not to necessarily want too badly to do some work, and they will tender accordingly. They'll tender at a price which makes it worth their while, you know. Because they're not desperate. Because they're not desperate. I'll tell you what, I'll be lining up behind Megan Woods to get a market study done on the building supplies market. That's former Housing Minister Phil Twyford in 2018 vowing to get the Commerce Commission investigating the cost of building materials. Because of the rorts and uncompetitive practices in the building supplies market, Kiwis are paying 30% more than Australians for the same building materials. Yep. It's one of the reasons why build costs are so high in this country. It's a duopoly, essentially, bringing in products into New Zealand. There's two big players, and it's really hard for anyone else to get in there. What we need in New Zealand is we need some competition. We need to put to bed whether or not uh, it is more expensive here or there, or whether fundamentally New Zealanders are paying a fair price. So both sides of politics agreed it needs to be tackled. And the inquiry looks set to start at the end of the year once the supermarket duopoly investigation is finished. I think it's inevitable. It's been, it's been on the sort of the word on the street for a period of time now. There's nothing new there. The problem, unfortunately, is it doesn't really matter what, what the outcome is. If they turn around and say, well, there's nothing to see here, move along. It's not going to put the complaints to, to bed in any way, shape or form. But just as building ramps up this year to tackle the housing crisis, a timber shortage slows work and pushes up prices. It's the base ingredient in many Kiwi homes, but now there are fears there's not enough of this timber to go around. A supply that Carter Holt Harvey stopped to some of the biggest retailers in the business, Bunnings, Mitre 10 and ITM. It's absolutely a perfect storm because what we're seeing is, one, this, this increased demand in terms of high-density housing. We're also seeing increase in the demand for logs. A lot of the problem came about by some of the larger builders um, basically forward-ordering a lot of the uh, material that they wanted for, to cover off their costs. We've been stockpiling on, on all of our projects for the last 12 months which hoovered up all the productive capacity uh, for the country because we've been shutting timber mills left, right and centre for many years. Mm. Um, so if you all of a sudden spike the requirement for supply to the mainstream you know, commercial construction sector, um, if the capacity is finite, 
whatever's gets left goes up in price, right? The lack of supply comes as ministers recently announced new housing policies aimed at increasing building. And that has an inevitable flow-on effect for, pe- for just jobbing people, builders. I build things at the weekend. I build decks and so on around my house and so on. Can you give me an example? How much is a... Well, I'll, I'll give you decking material yeah, as decking an example. material. The premium-grade decking, which I would normally purchase to do the t- type of work that I've, I've gone, has gone up from about... $8 a linear metre, depending on which merchant you get it from, up to 11 or 12 because if it's in, in high demand. I've got some le- lesser grade, what we call merch grade, um, that I'm using instead. Uh, that's just over 8 But I've had to throttle back on my expectations, let's put it that way. Let's stay with materials. Is it correct to say that they make up half of all construction costs? Oh, yeah, comfortably. That's distinct from land costs, right? The actual build yeah. costs. So should we look at where they come from? Sure. Because with COVID and the whole shipping problems, yeah. that that has been a major factor in the higher prices. It's certainly uh, affected significantly importation. The Going through the ports of Auckland has been problematic over the last year or so. Also, the effect of the downturn that, that uh, COVID brought in was actually a lot of shippers re- took it as an opportunity to reduce their, shall we say, back catalogue of ships and retire vessels and, and actually consolidate onto single vessels rather than multiple vessels to cut their own costs. And, and as a result of that, the a- actual amount of shipping is, uh, is contracted accordingly. Also, the, how the routes are planned out is, is we don't get so much coming direct in. Now it's going via... Australia as well. The ship that leaves Europe is not the ship that arrives in New Zealand. Huh. There's a hub-and-spoke model that normally goes somewhere else, and in the case of New Zealand, onto smaller vessels, with a few exceptions, and down to here. So that little bit in between is really important, that transship port, and that's the effect of the grounding in Suez or the delays in other places. Those big hub ports are significantly congested, meaning shipments down to New Zealand are much delayed at the moment. The amount of available tonnage that we've got coming in has been hit. So at the moment we've got 29 containers sitting in Tauranga and they've got to be railed up to Auckland. So we can't pick them up by freight because that's an $1,800 charge per container to us. Until such time as the, the economies, not just us, but globally, start mm-hmm. to spool up again and additional capacity comes on stream, at that point then we'll see the benefits. It's, it's no different from the airline industry in many ways. They've, they've literally taken sh- planes out of service. Yeah. And Done the cost the of catching a flight and the cost is of catching a flight much more expensive, up as well. Absolutely. Yeah. When it comes down to it, we're just dealing with the classic example of supply and demand. I'll give you an example, right? Global financial crisis 2008. The total construction um, that took place at that point around Auckland was about 3,000 homes per year. Now we're up to 15,000, 16,000 homes. It took, it took us 12 years to get to that level year on year. And yet the, the government were talking, you know, Prior to COVID, with the uh, Kiwi Build thing again, we were going to increase by about 30% the total construction numbers of uh, houses and dwellings that we were going to build in New Zealand. Mm. Well, it took us 12 years to just grow this much. Uh, we've got to achieve all of that growth again within a relatively short period of time. And it's a, sort of a... I'm not saying that we have uh, kamikazes for, uh, for for government here, you know, but the, what they're doing is setting, a, setting themselves up for an extraordinarily difficult uh, wish list, let's put it that way, to be able to expect an industry with minimal uh, self-investment or external investment for that matter to be able to flex and grow that quickly. 
And because of the huge shortage of skilled workers in the construction industry, has that been pushing up their prices? Um, it has inevitably driven prices up over over the last, well, pick a time period. The last 10 years it's gone, it seems to have scaled up year on year on year. Uh, this is the nature of supply and demand, obviously. Are things looking a bit better now because there's been so much focus on uh, apprenticeships and the money that's gone into that? The lag time associated with getting your apprentices through the schemes um, is such that it's going to be quite some time before the benefits of that are seen. Years. In, yeah, I mean, it's not a it's not a quick fix. And because there's been historic underinvestment, you're playing catch-up of literally decades. You, sorry to be depressing. Yeah, no, it's, it's quite grim so far. But, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, not your fault. From your perspective, are things starting to turn around? Are they looking more promising in terms of building up that skilled workforce? Speaking to the, the, the folks that I speak to, on the one hand, there's a huge upside associated with opportunity. However, there is a great fear. The downturn that was projected to happen, and I was one of the people who said there's going to be a downturn associated with COVID, has not happened. There's been a, a, a big uh, injection of cash into the economy. That's spiked uh, asking prices and so on. It's also spiked demand as well. New data out today shows asking prices for houses have doubled in some areas in the past 10 years. It's not just Auckland seeing enormous growth. The regions are red hot too. The question mark is how long is that sustainable for? And as it stands at the moment, nobody actually knows. So even though the order books look good, even though uh, there seems to be uh, more stuff coming through, all looking good, there is still a, a fundamental fear along the lines of how long can this last for? And by the way, how far do you want to be exposed? This is one of the reasons why we, um, it's very hard to invest in the large-scale infrastructure of, around, uh, for example, prefabrication, mm. absent large-scale orders. Okay, you, what you, does that mean? If you give me an order for a 1,000 homes in this location, I can put the infrastructure in place to be able to mass-produce things and the cost per unit will go down accordingly. However, those large-scale orders are not happening. The, the growth that you see tends to be incremental on a case-by-case basis. Individual clients go to a builder and commission an individual property. So you don't get the economies of scale of an individual developer, investor, wants to invest in 1,000 homes in this location and get associated cost per unit benefit. But isn't, at the moment, isn't Kainga Ora doing a, ma- a large scale? They, they are moving in that direction, yes. Go to Kainga Ora's website and you'll see under its construction intentions heading that over the next four years between 7 and $7.2 billion is being spent on new housing. Nearly 11,000 are in the planning stage, just over 2,600 are under construction, and a further 3,300 are in the consenting and procurement stage. But it's still still relatively speaking, I wouldn't say small beer, it's, it's better than it was. Mm. Um, but it, it has to go in that direction in order to achieve the economies of scale necessary to uh, hit their targets. Is it heading that way, or is it going to continue to be a bit bits and pieces? <laughs> Again, not being evasive by this, it's literally at this stage, everything's in a state of flux. We've looked at materials, we've looked at labour, we've looked at uh, regulation and we've looked at land. Why can't we prefabricate if we need to 
build to scale? Again, it comes from the ordering practices. You know, an individual client comes along to an individual builder and orders an individual house, which, by the way, is different from every other house because we don't do cookie-cutter type housing. The problem with that is each of these individual orders comes along at an, in, a, in such a way that you cannot sort of brigade them all together and make a big order of the same type of house to a, you know, a prefabrication facility to be able to do that sort of stuff. That's where it breaks down. Is it possible to do? And the answer is yes, absolutely. I'm doing some work at the moment with Prefab New Zealand, for example, and they've got some very dedicated, very capable um, organisations that are, are putting their hand up saying, you know, we, we, we can do more of this. But again, as soon as you say prefabrication, there is a, a preconceived notion that you're talking about the types of houses that were constructed after the Second World War um, to deal with the immediate need of a bombed-out population in London and places mm. like this. We also need to get past a whole bunch of other things. As an example, your expectations of a house are not the same as your the, your parents' expectations of a house or their parents' expectations of a house. As in what? We want three bathrooms? You and... want two or three bathrooms, you want a rumpus room and an office and a da-da-da-da-da, whatever. You know, if you go back to the sorts of houses that we were building back in the day, you were talking about 125 square metres. Now, pretty standard size in here in Auckland is 200, 250 we need to start thinking more creatively of, about how we can achieve quarter-acre living experience in a quarter of the space. So if we don't build smaller, mass-produced houses, we're not going to have cheaper houses. Well, the close too statement, too, too simplistic <laughs> statement. There needs to be a change in expectations. And I'm talking about in terms of specifications, total size, footprint, functionality, and so on. And the effect of COVID has been to actually increase the expectation of working at home, for example. So revised expectation. Better funding models, whether it be shared equity models of the likes of the Housing Foundation, for example, or uh, Habitat New Zealand, are a great way of generating more affordable housing. Changing the game, getting ahead of the market is what has to happen. Somebody, and it's it's hard not to point the finger at government at this point, has to step forward in the same sort of scenario as the Kangora setup and actually start issuing large-scale orders to build ahead of the marketplace. The other thing you've got to do, you've got to pick some winners and losers. If you're government, you say, right, Mr. Insert Company Name here, uh, I want 2,000 homes in that location by that date, and here's the money. Right, as opposed to what are they doing now? At the moment... Hectares and hectares of development around Kumu, for example. The project for the continued development around Kumu will take for the next 30 years. So you're not going to see a massive growth of a township around Kumu overnight. It will take 20, 30 years because nobody's getting ahead of the market. Everybody's building to fulfil the demand right now. I see. Nobody wants to build empty houses. And the only way you can get around that is by having somebody with deep pockets getting ahead of the marketplace. That's that's how you change the game. The problem, though, is as soon as you do that, then you affect people's existing owners' property prices, and that affects the politics, and then it gets complicated again. <laughs> I, if I had one criticism of how media, and obviously not yourselves or anything... No, of course not. Obviously not yourselves. <laughs> but, it, but how it gets reported, it's always looking for a silver bullet type of, you know, mm. there's always, and it's not media, media reflects society, it's uh, politicians as well, they want to do the silver bullet thing. 
there's no silver bullets here. Mm. You know, you, you, you're not going to change the fact that we're a small economy situated a long way from anywhere with a finite capacity to manufacture things. That ain't going to change. We have to either live with it or alternatively get ahead of it in some other way. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Flo Wilson engineered it. And thanks to John Tukey. Kakite anō.